uh, I just hope, that's my hope, is to be able to, and it's great for me because, you know, I have all this chicken scratching in my Bible so that when I go back and read in verses and comments and exclamation points and just stuff that I, I use as I preach without notes, but that's why I, um, I use those to give me cues to uh, keep my thoughts and uh, some uh, uh, comments together. So I pray that, that maybe you've never really looked at 2 Corinthians, but hopefully now it's taking on shedding a new light in your life, and I'm hoping that it uh, continues to build your faith. As it is for me as a pastor, I've, I've not looked at uh, 2 Corinthians with this intensity, and it actually is changing me as a pastor and about my view on ministry and where I'm going, and, and um, it's not to say, why didn't I see this before, but it's like, why it just pops out in my face uh, now that things that I'm reading, especially Paul's defense of his, of his gospel ministry, and then I'm hoping that you, uh, you see that with me, that again, that we are all called to be ministers. We are all involved in this work of ministry. Uh, so before I read chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians 7 through verse 10 of chapter 5, let's pray. Dear God, we do ask you this morning, me asking for this family at Hope to ask your blessing the ability to be able to teach and speak and to be able to see, but Lord, not just filling our head with wisdom or knowledge and information, but that the Holy Spirit would really implant this stuff within us. That this word would have your way with us. As I have already remarked, as I prepare it and teach it, I am being changed by it, Lord, convicted by it. I pray that it continues in a profound way, not only in my life, but in the lives of those who are hearing it and, and following it through each week. Father, I pray that as we read, your word does not go out void. It does not fade away, but lasts. We pray, Father, that your will would be done as you desire for us as Hope Church, but as the individuals here today who hear this, and you know every hair upon their head, and you know them much more intimately than they even know themselves. So, Father, we do pray for the ministry of your word as we stand here today, and I read this and I speak of it, Lord, to believe that it is your very word. It is your word that you breathe out to us this is the word that you desire for us to have, and we thank you for it. So I pray that we treat it with reverence, and we treat it as if it is the most, the greatest food of the greatest delicacy we could have, and that we are nourished from it and we need to eat from it, Lord. We thank you for your sustenance. We thank you for your care as a shepherd to his people and to his sheep. So we pray that as we pray every week, that you would be with us during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, not, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of or the dying of Jesus is really a, probably a better translation, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also be, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in gratitude or thanksgiving. There's a play on words of grace and gratitude to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which the word glory means weight. It gives you that, it's almost like this weight of weight, this weight of the glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, un that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, or overclothed, or superclothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We follow that invisible guy. <laughs> really. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil may the lord bless the reading of his word paul is defending his his uh, his ministry that's the occasion, as is properly known, the occasion, the reason why Paul is writing this letter 
Uh, he's writing it because of those people that you've been hearing me talk about, these self-appointed super apostles who Paul doesn't really have a very nice thing to say about. He calls them servants of the serpent of the devil himself, manipulators of the gospel, peddlers of the word of God. And they are, again, contrasting their ministry to Paul's as Paul's is full of weakness, not a whole lot of glory, not a lot of pop, not a lot of wow, but as he explains it to us, he transforms our understanding of what we're really supposed to be looking for. What is the real pop? What is the real wow we're supposed to? Is it the experience in the in here, in the now, or in the long term? The already, he says, you can have some of that. You can know that now, but this isn't what you're supposed to keep your eyes focused on. It is something of the future, which affects who you and I are right now. He's, the, these super apostles are contrasting Paul's pathetic body, his pathetic language, his rhetoric, his, the words, how he speaks and preaches, his persecutions, his being beat up, how his resp the response to his ministry is going, compared to these guys who are celebrities, who are on the big hair TV stations who are being writing books and selling them everywhere and, and just being just so cool and there's so many people flocking to their side and these, did you hear these guys? These are so good. These guys are so good. And Paul says, let's see what, how good they really are. Let's see what they have. Let's see where is the meat in their life, in their ministry. Where is it all? And Paul is contrasting his life and his ministry and his love and his service to the Corinthian church, who he is the father of, because he, by God's grace, he started that mission to these wannabes who come in and who don't necessarily seem to express any kind of love, but love the celebrity of their life. How people are running to them. How people are paying them. How Paul is doing this for free. Watch out. He's doing it for free. He's got an angle. But look at us. You're paying us. We're getting paid what we deserve. God's blessing us. So you can see how Paul is doing that. And it's important. Because it has relevance for today. Paul is opened last week, as we, and a week before, or this chapter of one, where he says, we, Therefore, we have this ministry. Something in his hand is a ministry. The ministry that transforms people who are blind, blinded by their own sin, but aided and abetted by Satan himself, the, 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 the ruler of this age, by taking every opportunity to turn your attention and my attention and everyone else's attention away from the gospel, away from Jesus, and focus on other things. And we have that model based in chapter 3 of Genesis. Did God really say? Does he really mean what he says? Does he really, is he really 
all that he says he is. And just because he says it, is it enough? So he says, this is a ministry by the mercy of God. And because we have this ministry, because we have this spiritual work, like what God is doing in my life and in our lives as apostles, he says, we have this ministry, and therefore, when we put our, and I've talked about this before, when we make sure that our compass is always to north, we can't get lost. We can't get lost. And you and I know that in life, we get turned around. And we get sucked this way. And we get sucked that way. And we can get so distracted that we need a compass in life. Because you say something. The world says something. My family says something. My mind says something. My heart says something. My emotions say something. And they're all pretty strong, are they not? And that's why Paul always has here for us a reason why he's in ministry. A reason why he is doing what he is doing. That this compass is always pointing north so that we do not lose heart. We do not give up. We do not forsake our responsibilities. In the fight, we do not let our arms go down. We do not say we compromise. We do not say it's tough. I must be doing something wrong. God's not blessing this ministry. Maybe I need to come up with a gimmick to pull people in. That's what he is saying. We do not lose heart. We do not give up. We do not tire. Now, he's not saying, again... People have an image of Paul that he's this unbelievable person who seems to have a Teflon life. You know, that, oh, Paul never got upset and he never got disturbed and he never felt like giving up. He doesn't, he's telling us the antidote for him is always pointing north. It's always pointing to the gospel. It's always the glory of God. It's the power of God. Because he's saying these guys... And the people that are now supporting him, but you all, Corinthians, you supported these guys because these guys had talent. You're telling me I don't have talent. And I'm going to tell you, you're absolutely right. It's not my talent. It's about the Spirit of God that he has given me as a deposit not only for my own salvation, but as an apostle, as all of us who are apostles, the ministry of the gospel. This ministry that we are not ashamed of because it has the power of God to change people's lives. Not to transform them from somebody from this to that, but transform their life, meaning their perspective on life. That they are no longer slaves to sin. They are no longer in darkness, but they are now in the light, as he said to us, because God has shown the face of Jesus to us. And that's what he says in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give. And let there be light out of this chaos and darkness. Genesis 1, God says, let there be. And Paul is going back and telling us that God is in now, through Christ, the ministry of creation, but new creation. And we are that new creation. We haven't gotten to 5 yet. Chapter 5 where we talk about if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. He's going to get to this. But he is saying here that God 
in the darkness of your life and my life because we were so blinded by our disobedience, yet also by being duped and dissuaded by the evil one himself who always told us, go another way, you're going to give up your life, you don't want to be a Christian, just do what you want to do, you've got time, you're not old, when you get old, then start thinking about dying. And this is where he says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Paul is saying, we don't lose heart because even if the gospel is veiled, God is sovereign. And if God wants to raise up someone who is going to be a vehicle or an instrument for his grace, he'll do it. It is not about your remarkable talents. It is about God desiring to use you and me, as pathetic as we may think our abilities are, God does use us for this ministry of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. So we don't lose heart. But you can see, in verse 16, he talks about another reason as we go to, so we don't lose heart. We haven't looked at those passages yet. And then he says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he says twice, yes, we are of good courage. So you see, we don't lose heart and we have courage. Why? Why? Because, he explains to us, we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of this wonderful message, this treasure of the face of Christ, this person that we love, this person that we desire to be with. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Very different than what these pop people have. He is saying... Jars of clay which are like to us throwaway Dixie cups. When, you, when they do ex, uh, archaeological digs, where do they find at the end of villages and stuff? Pots. Earthen pots. Just piles of them. Just broken. Because they were, they were useful but meaningless. It wasn't about on the shelf, oh, will you come and take a look at my beautiful earthen pots? No, let me show you what's inside of this earthen pot, of this clay jar. And Paul says, we have, God's given to us, us as weak and breakable vessels, this treasure. God has given to us, the most unlikely people on earth, this unbelievable gift of this treasure of the gospel and this man named Jesus. And why did he do that? To show that the surpassing power does not belong to these super apostles, does not belong to Superman, does not belong to the pastor with the longest resume who comes in the door and says, watch me work. You need me. No, he is saying, I am here to show you this weakened vessel, as Nate even said in Madagascar, that he had the ability to be in his weakness to be served. To be a servant, I mean, to serve. This power belongs to God, not to us. And notice, we are afflicted in every way. We are afflicted in every way. Every way. 
It comes to us at all angles from every side. We can't get away from it. It's what to be expected. We are not to look around with our faces radiant because our life is always going so well. Our kids are beautiful. They're doing the right things. Our life is perfect. We've made all the right decisions and we don't have any problems because we are God's children and we deserve it. No, he says, this belongs to us because God has given it to us. We are afflicted in every way. And notice how he is afflicted. He is crushed. He is perplexed. He is persecuted. He is struck down. Meaning it's a boxing. He's been knocked out. He's been knocked down. Excuse me. He's not destroyed. He hasn't been knocked out. Always carrying in the body, his body, the dying Jesus. Because by carrying this Jesus, who understands what it is to be persecuted, understands what it is to be under duress, understands what it is to be forsaken, understands what it is to be left alone and to be misunderstood. This dying of Jesus, this process of Jesus dying, is what he says here. He says, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in this body. So, we need to die. We need to be in the process of dying to ourselves every day so that it is imperative that that happens so that the life of Jesus may be seen. It has to happen for, before the other one can happen. You can't have two. So we have to die so that Jesus lives. We have to be afflicted. We have to take these things on as they come, not looking for them, people who are stupid to do that not looking for trouble but just trying to be people who are grateful for the grace of God in Christ day in day out the drip 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 of walking in life and walking in Christ and he says because in Christ we now as Jesus we are afflicted we are not crushed we are not driven to despair. We are not forsaken. We are not destroyed. He is not saying he doesn't feel this stuff. He is not saying that he doesn't go home and he doesn't feel badly and he doesn't feel, he feels misunderstood or he feels terrible. He tells us he's anxious. He has the, this anxiety or this concern over the life of the people of his church, of the people that he's led to the Lord. He understands what that feels like. He understands what it is to bleed. Paul may have seemed to have the skin of a rhinoceros, but he bled. He says, so that this death is in work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, so that to what has been written in verse 13, I believe so I spoke, we believe and we speak. Verse, chapter 16, I'm sorry, Psalm 116 that he's quoting here is in, in verse 13, talks about God being so great in his affliction that he just believes. He says in there, I believe. I believe because God has told me and God has done this and he needs not to say anything else and because he said it and because I believe it, now I'm going to speak. And he says, we believe it. Now we're going to speak. There's conviction 
about what you believe. And if you're convicted, he says, then speak. And that's what he does. Since we, he goes, I believe, so I speak. We also believe, so we speak. Knowing, now notice the reason. What is the reason? How can he be convicted? How can he be so assured? What makes that compass go back to north? Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Notice, he is talking about this profound humanity, not denying his deity because he's already talked about Jesus and the Holy Spirit being equal to God, being divine. He is telling now Jesus was really human. And his dying is a dying that we see in our lives. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and that's wonderful. But Jesus says, he's not done. His ministry is not done. His ministry is done through you, and through me, and through the apostles. The book of Acts is the work of Jesus through the Acts of the Apostle. That's what he's talking about. So how does this relate to us? If he's defending himself as being an apostle, well... Didn't Paul write chapter uh, 12 and 13 and 14 in the first letter? And what does he say? He says, I've given you gifts, the entire body. I've given you gifts, body parts, to make up this body. And who is the body? Christ is the head. We are the body of Christ. And he says, there, is, there may be some who are in front of people and who are talking and who get the attention and have their name out in front of the church. And may be seen each week. And may be looked upon. But he is saying, you can't say to the eye or to the hand, I don't need you. See, what we're looking at is that he's talking about this is body works. This is all about body works. Christ is working through us to do his work. We're working for Jesus. That's what we're doing. And so that's how this relates to us. He's defending his ministry as apostle, but this has every application to us. So we are not struck down. Do we get tired, folks? We do. Do we get frustrated, folks? Yes. Do we get frustrated as people of Hope Church? Yes. Have you been frustrated at the ministry that has happened here over the years and the decades? Yes. As I have been frustrated and saddened by the ministries that I have had to watch people come and people go and people desert you and people leave on bad feelings, people misunderstanding you. Not only me as a pastor, but as people. But the work is still going on. Whether there's five or there's 60 or 5,000, the work of Christ still goes on. That's what he's trying to say. It's not about a person because if we look for a person, then we're looking for the wrong reasons. Our eyes are not upon Jesus. We're not focused on. It is not the power of God. It is the power of somebody's talents. Anybody here has ever heard of Marva Dawn? And, uh, uh, she, she was a, she's a, a uh, theologian and has a, she's an adjunct professor at Regent College. And her books came out couple, maybe a decade and a half ago, she wrote a book along with Eugene Peterson, who is a pastor on staff there, and he wrote, you ever heard of the translation called The Message? That's him, okay, Eugene Peterson. He and Marva Dawn wrote a, wrote a book, which I've got a couple of them, 
uh, because of the interesting titles. The one I picked up quickly was called The Unnecessary Pastor. And I want to go, oh, wow, I can't read, wait to read that one. I'm sure there's been people in my congregation that have maybe attributed and contributed to that volume. But it's about people, or what they're writing about Marva and, and, and Eugene Peterson are writing to the fact that, that he is sitting with candidates for the pastoral ministry and reading the qualifications that are coming in and he shakes his head and just says, these people don't even know what they're looking for. The people that they're looking for are unnecessary pastors. They're not looking for the pastor of the Bible. They're looking for someone to do the things that are unnecessary in a church. And that's what these people in Corinth were looking at. They weren't looking for the power of gospel. They weren't looking for somebody sold out for Jesus in the sense that for your sake, I'm here. I'll be persecuted. I'll die for you. Marvin Dawn and... and uh, wrote a couple other books. One is Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. It's kind of an action about the movement of, of uh, you know, sensitive seeking movement that everybody was hoo-hoo and ha-ha and about all these years. That was so great that they were saying that, you know, we don't have people bringing their Bibles. We don't encourage people to open their Bibles or read their Bibles. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable in church. We don't want people to think that, you know, we're special or we're different. So we do everything we can to put things up on the wall. We do everything to make sure that we don't make people feel uncomfortable. We don't want to make people feel badly because these people are here are seekers. And the Bible tells me they ain't seekers. There is nobody seeks God unless God is working in their life, unless God is changing their lives. Then they become a seeker, and then you and I continue to be seekers. There are people, they're seeking for the Lord. He's right there. He's right here. You can ask anybody in church, who is this Jesus at a church in this church, and we'll tell them where he is, but they don't want that Jesus. They're looking for another God and another Jesus. That's why we have all these Religions and all these movements and all these churches that are just trying to use gimmicks to get people in the church. So she says, why are we reaching out to the world when we're dumbing it down, when we're not lifting it up and making it what it's supposed to be? And then she wrote another book called A Royal Waste of Time. What do you think that one is? 10 to 11.30. A royal waste of time because she said she was so upset by the church looking at the necessity of having to come to church and looking at it as a time at their disposal. And they call themselves Christians. So you can see her provocative titles are great to buy books, but she writes really well. And so does Eugene Peterson. Notice what he says here. This is what is the, the compass that goes north. He says, because we know we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart for we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead and will raise us. That's a promise. That's a promise from Jesus. That's a promise from the Lord. And he says, for it is, verse 15, for it is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, that it may increase in gratitude. You want grace? We want grace because we want more people here not to be fulfilled, not to feel anything else other than gratitude to the Lord for what he has done because they don't deserve it. 
and they've received it. You and I don't deserve it, but we've received it. That's what our message is. What's happening out there is that there are people who are telling them that, you know what, God died for me, you know, Jesus is my Savior, I got saved, so now I'm entitled to expect great things in my life. And you've heard me talk about this without naming any names, but there's a great many names to name. But people are out there telling people that they're looking at this eschatology and future things and saying, you can take them now. You can experience them now. You don't need to wait, as even their own terms, you don't need to wait for pie in the sky when you die, but you can have steak on the plate while you wait. You see the difference? You can have steak now. You can have it now. You can do it now. You should deserve this now. This is pull this all forward now. Don't look forward to it. But they don't understand what they're even looking forward to. Because if they're thinking that they're having steak, they don't know what's on the menu. And so people are dragging people in the church and tantalizing people and seducing people with a lie. So, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, as we all know, we don't feel it at 18 or 20, but we know when 30-something happens, when 40-something happens, when 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 and 90 stuff happens, we know that this body is wasting away. He says, our inner self is being renewed. Why? Because the more time and the older we get, we're supposed to have this progressive sanctification going on in our lives because God has remained faithful when we have not. God has remained loving when we have not. God has been merciful when we have not. And it doesn't depend upon you and me. It depends upon Jesus who died. We base our salvation. We cannot lose our salvation based upon our emotions or even what we think we understand. If we follow Christ, the Bible tells us that God accepted Christ's death on the cross. Therefore, we cannot lose our salvation if we understand truly the gospel. And that's my problem, is that I think the churches are filled and call themselves Christians, and they preach out of the Bible, but people don't even know what they're praising God for. Because you don't hear sin. And you don't hear sadness. And you don't hear brokenness. You hear therapeutic psychology and moralism. And notice what he says here, which is always interesting to me. For this light and momentary affliction. Light and momentary affliction. Wow. When we're going through it, it ain't light, is it? When Paul, I mean, Paul... He's, I mean, he, we haven't got to that yet. I mean, this guy's had some bad chops in life, hasn't he? I mean, he's gotten licked up pretty bad. And none of us have gone to this. And him looking at his life as being light and momentary, why? Only because he's looking at the reward and the gifts that God has in store for him. He isn't looking at this life and saying that I deserve it now. He is saying I die every day to myself and to my will and my desires to serve others. That includes you and me in your relationship with your work, with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, with your church. Dying to yourself 
It's not your will be done, it's God's will be done. And we may need to die so that others will come to know who Christ is and to show mercy and to show forgiveness. When we are struck by sin by them, we have mercy like Jesus had mercy. But he says we have a light and momentary affliction perplexed. <laughs> Crushed and not perplexed, afflicted, persecuted, struck down. That's a momentary affliction. And this lasted not for a season. It lasted for Paul's Christian life till he was martyred. He was murdered and killed, executed. To this eternal weight of glory, he says, this eternal weight of glory, there's nothing that can compare with that. We may not feel it here. That's why he's saying, don't look. Don't look at what you see. Because what you see can cloud your vision. And every place you turn, right? Paul Tripp said that in one of those films, one of those uh, things. He says, you have that in front of your face. You can't get away from it. It clouds where you are, every place you look. He says, for as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. And that's where Hebrews chapter 11 comes in, verse 1, as we read last week. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yes, folks, as you heard me paraphrase, we do follow an invisible man that people cannot see. Until we come to know Christ and until the Spirit of God regenerates us and until the Holy Spirit comes into our life, do we see Jesus? So if the gospel is veiled, he says, it's up to God to take that veil away. It's not up to you and me. Our job is to make sure that we present the gospel to them. And we don't tell them anything more or less of what it is. You think about this light, and I always go back and that many commentators are thinking about the story of Gideon. When, it, you know, when Gideon was one of the judges, as uh, um, Ted said last week when we looked at the, the faith chapter there in chapter 11 and 12 of Hebrews last week, he was talking, that this, these aren't heroes. You know, look at Gideon. You know, fleecing is not something that God wants you to do. Okay, he doesn't want you to set out a fleece. Because you know what? And you notice he says, excuse me, Lord, just forgive me one more time, but I want to set out another fleece. Because you've said this, and you've shown me, but it just is not enough. Can you just pass this one more litmus test for me? Right? That's what Gideon did. So, Lord, let me fleece this. And then, not that these men that, they, that God picked out of 32,000 people ready to go fight, what does God say? Went down to 10,000. He goes, that's just too many. I can't use, I'm not using 10,000. And then these men who sat and got under, the, 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 uh, lapped the water to drink versus the ones who kneeled down. People and pastors and people who preach say, that's the kind of people God wants, the people that are always alert and the people that are lapping, lapping like the water like, like these people did. These are the men and women that God is going to use. has nothing to do with them. These people, the 300 men are weak. This is the weakness of Israel he's talking about. Gideon is showing, I mean, the writer of Judges is showing that Gideon was a man who was weak in his faith. I know you, God, the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, 
Now, I know you're upset, and I know you're, I know you're anxious, and I know you're afraid. Didn't sound like a hero to me. And he goes, I want you to go with 300. Why? Because I want you to know that it was me who did it. And so what does he do? He spreads out 300 men at night, and they carry torches and trumpets. And they go around, and they, Midianites, and they surround the Midianites, and then all at once they scream like a war scream. 300 in this, they said they look like locusts, these Midianites. And they, and they scream out their war cry, and they break the jar of clay with the light in it, and they see these 300 lights and realize, wow, they've got 300 lamps. How big is that army? Not knowing that these guys weren't ready to fight. They were ready to just shout and show and then pursue. And so what do they do? By God's grace, by God's power, nothing Gideon and his men did. They Midianites turned in each other and killed each other. Where do you take the glory in that? And that's where this whole story is about. Maybe some people say this, this jars of clay pointing back to the light that Gideon had to show the weakness of Israel, to show the weakness of this leader called Gideon. It wasn't about him. Paul says, it's not about me. You and I, and I have to say, it's not about me. It's not about Nate. It's not about anything. He is telling you, folks, that though there are 60-some people here, what can't God do? The world wants you to lick your wounds. Satan wants you to lick your wounds. God wants you to focus on the gospel and the power of God, the resurrection, and plead, cry out to him and say, Lord, do it. Do it. I'm weak. I'm a jar. I can break and my life is broken. But what oozes out, folks? What oozes out when it breaks? The treasure. That's what oozes out. And when our life dies, I read this passage. I read this at Rosemary's funeral. Because this is what she kept on going, regardless of how she felt. You know, like I said, you know, she had sometimes out of her, out of her great, great love for Jesus, she still maintained that New York City finger. That I could still feel in my chest. But she loved me. She appreciated my ministry. Sometimes a little off color. Sometimes a little off. But her theology wasn't perfect. But her theology was right about Jesus. And she wasn't afraid. She knew she was a glass, an earthen vessel. She knew she was a clay jar. Verse chapter, and then, then the, the, the next part here, verses 5 to 1 through 10, real quickly. These could be broken up into two, but I think they belong together because we're looking at the contrast between being losing heart and having courage. He says, for we know, he's continuing the argument, I believe. Now notice the comparisons and the metaphors, sometimes he mixes them. For we know, there's conviction, that he, he's convicted. He, he's not wobbling one way or the other. He's not saying, oh, I'm not sure, I think. He goes, I know. We know that if the tent, being a tent maker, correct? He knew tents. He repaired tents. He created tents. 
who should think about tents but a tent maker? That if the tent that is our earthly home, which is our body, is destroyed, notice what he says, we have a building. We don't get another tent. We get a building that's enduring, that is stronger, that has more strength, that lasts. We lose this tent, we are given a building that is from God, not from Home Depot. A house not made with hands, but it's eternal in the heavens. That's where we're looking for, folks. This life may, excuse the phrase, suck. It may stink. For some of you, it's wonderful. For others, it just rots. And of course, it's all relative, right? For some of us, we want, we want you know, the best surgeon in the world to pull a thorn out of our finger because we can't stand it. And for others, can endure great pain. It's not time for judgment. It's time for reality check. It's time for the people of God, the pastors, the elders, the people of Hope Church, to make sure that we bring people who are suffering, we come alongside of them, and make sure that their compass is north. That's our discipleship ministry. He says, for this tent, in this tent we groan. We're pilgrims, folks. Pilgrims have what? A destination. Nomads don't know where they're going. And we're not in the Bible saying anywhere that we're nomads. We are pilgrims going somewhere. For this tent we groan longing to put on that heavenly dwelling. I know I am. I know Bob is. I know Jeff is. I know many of you. My daughter's just, you know, at their age, just everything's great. You know, they got vim and vigor and can do all kinds of stuff. But you know, Stan and I played golf the other day on Friday night, and we walked about five miles. I got my, my iPhone, I got that thing, and it works. And we said, we, it took, we about with 11,000 steps. We were laughing on Friday nights. Young men would be out, men would be out looking for fun, and there's the three old men playing golf till dark. But we, we walked, and, you know, we felt it. You know, what we get in the car? Boy, we got some Advil? You go home and you sit in the chair and rigor mortis sets in. You go, oh, and you get up the next day and we carry our bags, you know, another 30 or 40 pounds on top of this weight for three, four, five miles. We feel it. He says our bodies are groaning. Our bodies are wasting away. Romans 8 tells us that it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all going to die. Creation is crying out for redemption. If indeed by putting on, he says, we may be found naked. Now, in these passages here, and I'll read this. For a while, for a while we are still in this tent we grow, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we, we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. To me, this sounds like what? Swallowed up by life sounds like the resurrection, sounds like Easter Sunday, sounds like Romans, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Does it not? Swallowed up? Some people believe that this is talking about dying and the intermediate state and what we have afterwards and I don't think it has I even though some of the best people I know and read and heard talk about this as being the intermediate state I don't believe so because to me nakedness is about shame and I finally found a couple people that agreed with me <laughs> it's shame 
When you're naked in the Bible, it's about shame. Adam and Eve had no problem with nakedness before 3, right? Chapter 3. After chapter 3, they hid because they were naked. They were ashamed. And so being without Christ, as the Bible teaches, we, in Christ we are now clothed with Christ. So he says, it's not that, he says, uh, not that we would want to be unclothed, but that we would rather be further clothed. We would have to have that new overcoat, that new body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has prepared for us this very thing, and it's God who has given us a spirit of guarantee. Roman, I mean, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit was given to us as a deposit and a guarantee of the work of the Spirit in us that we are followers of Christ, that we have been born again, that we are the Christians and we are disciples of Jesus by having the Holy Spirit in us. So, he says, we are of good courage. It's not that we lose heart. We are of good courage. Why? Because we have this unbelievable idea these Jews probably went berserk when you hear this that the spirit of God which have all these stories about the pillar and the, the Shekinah glory and all that stuff he lives within us so he says we walk by faith not by sight and yes we are of good courage and we would rather be home with the Lord meaning that he says it's true this is a tiresome life it is a worrisome walk. This is tough. I would rather. Don't you? Wouldn't you? I do. I would rather the Lord come and call it quits right now and saying it's over. It's complete. My job is done. Here's your new bodies. We're not waking up. Never to take another Advil again. Never to take any kind of medication again. Have our eyes so perfect because then we can see perfection. Because then we will be like Jesus. And as John writes, and when we see him, we will see him because we will recognize, because we will be like him. Our eyes don't know what perfection is. But when we get our new body, our eyes will be able to see perfection in everything. Creation in you and I will be perfect then. Which is something to look forward to. Is it not? He says, I would rather, as he says in Philippians 1.23, I want to depart and be with the Lord because that's better by far. Now what does that mean? I don't know what the intermediate, intermediate state is. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. Uh, I don't think people are unknowing what it means to be in that intermediate state. I don't know. I just know that Paul says, it's better by far. It's better. He says, but what does he say in Philippians? He goes, I know, that's what I'd rather do. But the Lord wants to keep me here because I've got a ministry to keep on going. I want to call it quits. I want to bail out. I'm tired of this stuff. But he says, I would rather depart and to be with the Lord, which is, I hope, what you and I desire. We don't look in the mirror saying, yep, got to take some more steroids. I got to take some more hormones. I got to work out in the gym more because I got to keep this body going. When does it stop? Planet Fitness is full because it's only $9.99 for people who are trying to keep that body going. He said, I would rather, hope you say, you would rather depart and be with the Lord because it isn't about getting a new body. Who's in heaven? Jesus, the Lord. That's who we're looking forward to. I jokingly say, I can't wait to get to heaven because the golf courses are going to be great. I tell people that. 
or the food's going to be great. I tell people that, but truthfully, it's all about Jesus. That's where he is going to be. That's who we're longing to be with, Jesus. So he says, whether at home or away from the body, what keeps your compass going north? We aim to please him. Finally, just here, to what this means here, he says, so whether at home we make it our aim to please, at home or away, we make it to aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. John Piper has written a book, long time, about uh, 90s, says the purifying power of living by faith in future grace. And this is what he is talking about, future grace. Yes, we can feel it now. Yes, we can experience it now. Yes, there are blessings now. Not like the health and wealth people. Not like people are telling that you deserve promotions and you deserve this and you deserve prosperity and health. Not that at all. He is saying, yes, we can feel the already, the blessings of God in the various ways, but it's not yet understanding. These people are missing out if they think that steak is good. He says, at the heart of this book is the conviction that the promises of future grace are the keys to Christ-like Christian living. The hands that turn the key is faith, and the life that results is called living by faith in future grace. By future, I do not merely mean the grace of heaven and the age to come. I mean the grace that begins now, this very second, and sustains your life to the end of this paragraph. By grace, I do not merely mean the pardon of God in passing over sins, but also the power and the beauty of God to keep you from, from sinning. By faith, I do not merely mean the confidence that Jesus died for your sins, but the confidence that God will also, with him, freely give us all things. Romans 8, 32. Faith is primarily a future-oriented assurance of the things hoped for. Its essence is the deep satisfaction with all the promises from God to be for us in Jesus beginning now. That's what he is saying here. I don't think it's about the intermediate state. I don't think, I think it's about he does not want to be unclothed. He wants to make sure that he has the robes of Christ on now, that he is clothed in Christ now to serve Christ here. And he does not want to be naked when it says, because everybody's going to need to be faced the judgment seat, he does not want to be naked because he has no one to protect him, no one to vouch for him. He has no righteousness of his own. He is a naked person or a naked woman it talks about that in all the prophets about israel being naked as a prostitute an exposure to their guilt and their shame and to be judged for who they are throughout the the, the prophets that whole thing about shame and nakedness leads to the destruction of the judgment and so paul is saying i do not want to be unclothed i don't want you to be unclothed i don't want you to be without christ he says, I would rather that body, but he goes, right now, he goes, this future, this what life I'm living right now is a motivation because of what Jesus has done, what he has prayed for that room, he's prepared that room for us. He says, in light of that life and that grace, the life that we live now is one of future grace in gratitude. That's what he's talking about. So you can see where Paul takes us. He can have, he doesn't lose heart, 
but he has great courage because he's convicted of the gospel. He believes that the only sign that we need is the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus, nothing changes that. You and I waking up one day and sinning against God does not change that Jesus died for us. But as we read today, that God's grace and mercy, if we ask for forgiveness, God is faithful and will purify us. So that's where Paul's ministry, which is hopefully blowing the, blew the minds of these super apostles, and bringing people back, and yourself back, so you have something when life rots, when weeks rot, when months rot, when your life for months and years seem to just build and build and build, that you have this supernatural ability to bring your compass back to north, always pointing to Christ. That's what Paul wants for you. I need it, and you need it. Let's pray. Dear God, we do praise you and thank you for this supernatural grace, this treasure that we have been given. Yes, by the Apostle Paul and the other apostles in the group that that we're going around and starting churches and setting up churches and organizing churches and seeing people with supernatural gifts being able to raise the dead and uh, bring out uh, death and um, from uh, life from death and blindness uh, out and bringing them sight and transforming lives of people, Lord. We thank you for that. You have given us this power of the gospel to see people who don't have hope and people who don't fear death and people who don't think that they need to be at peace with you, Father. You are the one that changes people's hearts and gives them that mind to be able to say yes to you, Jesus. So we still have that gospel. It is still the gospel, the power of the gospel that we should not be ashamed of because it is the power unto salvation. And so, Lord, as weak as we are, as earthen as we are, it is not about us. It is about you. It is about the treasure that we have within us. So I pray, Father, that you, by your grace, will allow us, as was done this week at Camp Hope, the seeds that were planted, the faces that we saw, hopefully through the the power of the and the ability and the presence of the teachers and the school and, and all that was going on that these children and parents could see we were people of hope and people who were different because we have a different perspective on life. Lord, I pray that those seeds are planted. And now to those of us who we meet today and to those of us, to those who we meet in this week, Father, I pray that you will open up the ministry to be able to have us minister to be ministers of this gospel. Not that they are apostles, not that they are pastors, not that they are teachers, but they are, they are jars of clay and carry with them this treasure of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn. <laughs>